when we started uh, talking about spiritual gifts, um, in my mind, the plan was the absolute thing I did not want to do was be stuck just talking about the sign gifts in one lesson. I, I, I had planned and outlined everything to where we would, we would come uh, to the sign gifts one at a time as we came to them in the text because I did not want to have a lesson that just dealt with the sign gifts. And so here we are today, we're going to have a lesson that just deals with the sign gifts. Um, so sometimes the best laid plans, uh, God has other plans. And so if you remember last week as we talked about the list that are given in the New Testament for spiritual gifts, um, they're different. They're different in 1 Corinthians, they're different in Romans, they're different in Ephesians. But if we look, there, there are lots of similarities. So apostle is given twice. Prophecy is given twice. Teaching is given three times. Miracles are given once. Healing is given once. And so I, w- I wanted to give us this list again so as we, we talk through this we can reference it. Um, so we remember that the, over the last two weeks as we've looked at 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, we saw that the purpose of all the gifts are for the edification of the body of Christ. And Paul said over and over and over again, don't look at gifts and say, I want that one, this one's better than that one. Don't, do not use spiritual gifts as a litmus test over who's more spiritual and who's not. Do not do that. Don't use the gifts for that at all. And yet we see in a large segment of the Christian world today, especially in the Western world, uh, that exactly being done. Uh, If you go to some churches in our city, if you do not show the signs of being baptized by the Spirit of speaking in tongues, then you are considered a second-class Christian in direct violation of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. He says specifically, the gifts aren't as important as the the unity of the body. In two of those texts, he uses the analogy of body parts and says, how can the ear say to the eye, I'm better than you? Or what if the whole body said, I want to be an ear, then how would we see anything? He uses analogy after analogy to try to get us to see that the purpose of the gifts are given so that Jesus can grow the church. And yet we find ourselves with the signed gifts, the more miraculous gifts, doing just that. Furthermore, I believe that there's a profound misunderstanding of what the sign gifts are, why they were given, and what they're to be used for. The same holds true, though, with the gift of teaching. The same holds true with the gift of preaching. Um, Donna and I have had an ongoing conversation for the last, last week or so about how it seems like in the church today that people are elevated before large crowds of people Because they are gifted speakers, and nobody takes the time to check out their life, check out their testimony, or check out whether or not they know what they're talking about. There was a a preacher in uh, uh, North Carolina who preaches in a church. He probably runs 10,000 on a Sunday morning. The week before Easter a few years ago, he was in Israel And while he was riding down the road, a cabbie told him that in Hebrew there was no word for sin. And so his Easter sermon that year 
was on how there is no Hebrew word for sin and that God uh, doesn't have a, uh, isn't trying to say that we've done wrong. Well, if you want to take about 30 seconds in Google, Hebrew word for sin, you'll find out that Hebrew has a ton of words for sin, which is why in the English translation they struggle with, because you can't translate seven different words with the same English word or that confuses people. So in the Hebrew Bible they have sin, transgressions, um, there's all these different words where the translators are trying to capture the thought process of when God is saying, you as a human being are wicked. And the Bible says that over and over again. So this fool stood in front of God's people and said, thus says the Lord, and said a bunch of stuff that was not only junk, all he would have had to have done is take 10 seconds and Google Hebrew for sin and get pages of information. And yet we elevate people because they have a gift of speaking. They're good, and he's a fantastic speaker. So we have to be really careful that we don't look at gifts and go, this one is better than this one. That is not how this works. And Paul has taken three major passages in the New Testament to make that point. And again, you have those in front of you, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Now... Some people lump apostleship into with the sign gifts, but I think that we covered that enough last week. Let me just simply say apostle, apostolos in Greek means sent out one, and for 2,000 years of church history, the church has understood that that means someone who was specifically and verbally sent out by Jesus, that there were 14 apostles, there aren't any more. So I'm not even going to include that one. I think that one stands on its own. And we talked about last week how we do still have the gift of the apostles because we have everything that they wrote down. Prophecy is often included, and I put it at the front of the list because if you look, if you just go out and read in some reputable sites about, and the word you want to look for is cessationism. If you go out and look at that idea, um, cessationist people who believe that the sign gifts have ceased, that they've stopped, will typically lump prophecy in with that. I do not. Uh, in the light of Romans 14, and the fact that Paul... The Bible does two things whenever it talks about stuff. There's always something that's descriptive. I don't read the story of David and Bathsheba and assume that God is telling me to go have an affair. The Bible is simply describing what he did. It's descriptive. It doesn't pull any punches. It just tells the truth. This is what he did. I don't read the book of Judges and try to learn how to live my life. It's describing how when man does whatever is right in his own heart, it all falls apart. It wasn't given prescriptively, it was given descriptively. And so whenever we read the Bible, what we, especially in the book of Acts, we look at is this descriptive, like what we see at... Um, and at the, at, when Pentecost occurred and the Holy Spirit comes down with tongues, there was nothing that the disciples that were in that room did to cause the Holy Spirit to fall like that. There's nothing we can do to conjure up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes wherever he's God. He goes wherever he wants to go. He can do whatever he wants to do. And I can't conjure him up. And so in the book of Acts, it is describing what happened, but it's not prescribing that before I go tell anybody about Jesus, I have to have a cloven tongue of fire that comes down and touches me. 
it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And so uh, the cessationist, uh, of many of whom I respect and love and listen to their teaching, but I would disagree on this point, they would say uh, their argument primarily is from 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, love never ends, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 8, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so they teach that prophecy, tongues, <clears throat> special knowledge, all passed away when the perfect came, which they will define as the completion of the canon, when the Bible was complete. If that's true, then why does Paul, my thinking is, if prophecy is to be included in this list, why does Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians 14 that we are to desire prophecy and over tongues? It seems to me that he's prescribing that we are to desire prophecy over tongues, which is why I choose to believe that prophecy isn't a future foretelling. It is a a foretelling. It's a foretelling of what God's Word says. Just as a prophet would stand in front of the people in the Old Testament and say, Thus says the Lord, if you take God's Word and say to somebody, Sister, I love you, but the Bible says that this behavior is unacceptable. You are foretelling God's Word. And you're performing the same function, which is why the Bible tells us to test prophecy. Because lots of people will try to twist and turn God's word to make it say what they want it to say. And so if somebody comes to you and says, hey, what you're doing is wrong, you need to stop doing it, and here's why biblically, then you test it against God's word, which we're commanded to test prophecy. And I think that's why that is. I think that prophecy is still a gift that's given. I think that there are people, and again, as we talked about yesterday as we went through the list, there are people that you can think of who know how to handle God's Word, and God has given them a unique gift to where they can see a situation and they immediately know, well, God's Word applies to that from here. And that's that gift. A cessationist would say that... uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the idea of knowledge, which my argument against using 1 Corinthians 13 is in a cessationist argument has always been, well, nobody is going to claim that we can't, have, we can't know anything, and it says that knowledge will pass away. And in the context of Paul talking, in this, uh, talking about love, it seems to me that he's talking about all knowledge. And what he's saying is, is, no matter how much you know, if you don't have love, it's a waste of time in context. And nobody's suggesting that when the canon was completed that we can't know what the Bible says. So your argument falls apart, I I say. They would say, well, in this case, it's referring to special knowledge, where someone has been given special revelation. When you're preaching this, and you're going to edify and prophesy the church. Yes, sir. And I would agree that that would be a prophetic use of God's Word. Now, there are some of sermons that are teaching. I would say last Sunday's sermon was more teaching, but even in that sermon, there were prophetic statements. I made a specific prophetic comment about horoscopes. Don't use horoscopes. God's Word teaches against it. At best, you're wasting your money, and at worst, you're dabbling with demons. That would be how I would define a prophetic statement. 
I'm not saying that next week Donald Trump is going to get shot. That's not modern or, or New Testament use of the term prophecy, in my opinion. Now, so I drop prophecy off the list of, of sign gifts. And so sign gifts are gifts that were given for a specific purpose at a specific time. Typically, most people use those to talk about miracles, healing, and tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Just as I drop prophecy from that list, I also drop tongues and the, the interpretation of tongues. So let's talk about that. The word used here for tongues, in fact, if you have a King James Bible and you're reading in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 12, and see the word tongues, it will say unknown tongues, and the word unknown will be in italics, which means it was added by the translators. The word used there is just tongues, glossolalia. Oh, I, uh, I got out of order my notes, and I did that for a reason. I don't remember what my reason was. So let's, let's deal with miracles first. We'll come back to tongues. Um, miracles, healings. Being able to uh, cast out demons, um, all of that, those apostolic gifts that we see, Paul, uh, Peter, the apostles that were sent out by Jesus, and their immediate followers performing in the book of Acts. The New Testament seems to indicate to us that as we got further and further away from Pentecost, those sign gifts became less and less evident. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. So why did Paul leave this sick guy at Miletus? Why didn't he just heal him? Why does Paul pray? Why does Paul tell Timothy, a little wine for your stomach's sake? We talked about what the wine was with the jelly and the wine skin and how by mixing the water that might have amoebas, amoebas and whatever with that fermented, jellified stuff, that that would purify the water. It makes sense what he said, but if Paul was ha- uh, Timothy was having chronic stomach issues, why didn't Paul just heal him? Why didn't Paul tell Timothy to ask for the elders to call, be called to pray over him to heal him? Paul gave him a, a, a very specific, very practical, very down-to-earth, day-to-day thing to do. Why did Paul not heal Trophus? Honestly, because the power to heal didn't originate from within Paul. Paul never of his own volition decided who he would heal or who he didn't. That was a power that came from God. Paul didn't have the power to heal someone. God had the power to heal someone and he used Paul to do it. And they were all specific incidences that verified that the message that was being sent was from God. Let me give you a specific example. Peter, after Pentecost, is, a few days after Pentecost, is walking through a gate. Someone is crying out for, for alms. Peter's walking through the gate. He looks and sees the guy and says to him, Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. And Peter healed him right there in front of everybody. 3,000 people were saved that day when Peter preached the gospel because they saw a guy who had sat there. It says every day he sat there and cried out for alms. If you go back through the gospels, 
you can read three or four different occasions when Jesus walked through that same gate. If he was there every day crying out for alms, why didn't Jesus heal him? Did, was Jesus just mean? Was the man undeserving of healing? Was God waiting for Jesus didn't have enough faith to heal him? Maybe he didn't have enough faith to be healed. Well, he didn't ask Peter. He asked Peter for money. The reason why Jesus didn't heal him three years before, the first time he went through that gate, or the time he went through the gate the last week of his life, is because when Peter healed him, it verified that what Peter was preaching was of God. Because people don't heal somebody. The very nature of miracles is, it's not what's expected. It's not what we anticipate. And it verifies that moment when John sent his apostles to Jesus and said, are you the one or is somebody else coming? Jesus said, "Show them what you've, tell them what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, and then he'll know. Because that's a direct fulfillment of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. That when my man comes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and the deaf will hear. And so Jesus said, go tell John what you've seen. And that'll verify that I am who I say I am. Same thing with Peter at that moment, that God verified that when Peter stood up in the gate or or the the porch of of the synagogue porch and preached the gospel, that what he was saying was truth. Because this guy who everybody in the city knew because they passed him every day and every day he begged was now walking around. That doesn't happen. So this has to be from God which is why we call them sign gifts. And so miracles in the Bible, and I'm going to quote from John MacArthur here, in line B, miracles in the Bible primarily occurred in three major periods of time. The time of Moses and Joshua, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Christ and his apostles. It is during these brief periods of time and those alone that miracles proliferated, that miracles were the norm, that miracles were in abundance. Now God can interject himself into the human stream supernaturally anytime he wants to. I, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't pray for anybody. We're not limiting God. We're simply saying that he has chosen to choose specific times when miracles are the norm. And we aren't in one of those times. I don't believe necessarily, though, that that means that God has withdrawn miracles completely. I've shared with you guys the stories of missionaries that I know personally and personally would vouch for their honesty and veracity of their stories, who have seen God work miracles and it verified in that specific situation that this particular speaker is from God. I think the reason why God doesn't necessarily perform miracles today is because we're not in the fight. We're not out preaching the gospel. So he doesn't need to verify that our opinions are our own. Everybody else can tell that straight away. So my theological position is called a cautious non-cessationist. I believe that the sign gifts are still given, but I cautiously believe that. In that if somebody holds a healing, 
at a church at a specific time that flies in the face of the model that we see in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, it's been proven to be fake. And if you really have the gift of miracles and you aren't hanging out at Children's Hospital, you are a cruel person. I'm just being honest. If you can heal people and you are calling people to a church building and you're lining them up to lay hands on them and then you're taking people's money and you really can heal people, you are of all men most cruel. Why aren't you at the hospital? Why aren't you eliminating human suffering? And the lie that the person who's being healed has to have faith flies in the face of everything the New Testament says about healing. The man who was begging for money didn't have any faith. He wanted a dollar. That's all he wanted. And so when Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I will give to you, I guarantee you he was disappointed. Until... And so, I don't believe that the gift has ceased. I don't see anything in the Bible that says it does. But I see the purpose of miracles in the New Testament as verifying the message being from God. The Bible is a self-authenticating message. I can believe it whether, whether I believe it or not, it is true. And it self-authenticates. Tongues is a different story. As far as I know, uh, with the miracles, I brought a list, and I was actually going to put it in the notes, and then I realized I had far too many. The idea of miracles slowing down after a certain point in Acts is a position that was shared by John Christosom of 344 A.D., Augustine 354 A.D., Theodoret of Cyrus 393 A.D., John Calvin 1500, Martin Luther, 1483, John Owen, 1616, John Gill, 1697, Jonathan Edwards, 1703. I'm not alone in that position. Everybody else's opinion doesn't matter. Search the word for yourself, but I think you'll see in the New Testament, especially from the text that that you have in your notes, why would Paul leave somebody who's sick if he could heal him? Clearly he couldn't. Okay. And if you want to look at some of these quotes, uh, they're available. Tongues. The word tongues, it's hard for us to to wrap our brain around a little bit because since about 1960, we haven't used the English word tongues the way we used to. It used to be said, they speak the Italian tongue. That would make sense to people. In fact, if you go to... um, In Tennessee, it's... uh, where, and his name just flew out of my mind, the Cherokee Indian um, man who got his doctorate and wrote out for the first time the Cherokee language. Oh, there's a big museum for him in Tennessee. Um, See, this is why you should write notes down. Uh, Anyway, he also translated the Bible. He was a believer, and that's the reason why he did all that. Um, and in the museum, it has a plaque that's been there since, you know, 1800, and it says, he translated the Bible into the Cherokee tongue. That's how the word was used. That's exactly how it's used in Greek. Glossolil, uh, 
And you look at the, look at the squig, squigglies there, can either mean, and it's used in the New Testament for the tongue, literally, the tongue, a member of the body, tongue as in the organ of speech, somebody's talking, the way that my dad would use it that way would be, son, you're running your mouth. In fact, my dad uh, had an old Plymouth, and the ply broke off of the, 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 uh, the plaque on the side of the car uh, that was stainless steel. The P-L-Y fell off, and it just said mouth. And one night while I was asleep, he took that mouth off the car and put it on the door to my bedroom. So as you walked up to my bedroom, it said in, in stainless steel, mouth on the door. He would constantly say to me, son, you just have to learn how to shut your mouth. Quit running your mouth. That was a, for some reason, a constant refrain in my home growing up. I don't know. It's, it's a mystery, even today. That's how tongue is being used in that same way. And then the third thing is a language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writing about this, he says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Again, this is why I don't believe that prophecy is a sign gift that's gone away. He says, desire, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encourages and consolation. The one who speaks in a, in a tongue builds it up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now remember, in Acts chapter 2, when tongues fell on those people, they were speaking, it was a miracle of both the voice and a miracle of the ears. Right? Let me tell you uh, how I would preach in Samsun, Turkey. I would stand behind the pulpit. And beside me, Pastor Orhan would stand. And I would say, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. And he would say, blah, 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 blah. And then in the back of the room, where there was an Arabic group of people, someone would translate what he said, because they didn't speak English either. So he translated it to Turkish, and then they translated it to Arabic. And so a sermon that might normally be 30 minutes would be at least 45. And it's really hard to get any momentum, because you go, and you know what God says? You know what God says? You know what God says? I don't even remember what God says. He says a bunch of stuff. You know what? <laughs> so... It's hard to get momentum, and it's hard to preach that way. The first time, I, and I've spoken for years through a translator uh, in different places, and I didn't understand the Turkish language. In Turkish, the whole sentence is structured around the primary verb. I didn't know that. And so I would say, tomorrow, here in Samsun, and I would stop. And he would go, I can't translate that. That doesn't make any sense. You've got to finish your sentence. I say, I'm going to go to the store. And so then he could build the sentence because he was going to build it around going. And so the first time I preached in Turkish, about halfway through the sermon, the preacher put his hand on my shoulder and said, come here, I need to talk to you. 
clearly you don't know what you're doing. So you have to give me one sentence at a time. You can't just break it up into thoughts. But you had to have someone that spoke the tongue that I spoke. And if you think about it, if I use a phrase that doesn't translate well, he's got to know the Bible well enough to know what I'm thinking, what I'm trying to say, translate that in such a way that culturally these Turks are going to get it. And then the person in the back's got to do it in Arabic. Now, we don't have to deal with that in an American context. We don't have to deal with that in a Western context at all. But let me tell you what, in the Corinthian church, they had to deal with that. Because Corinth was on a trade road. There might be in any given church service six or seven languages. And so you had to have somebody that spoke in that tongue. You had to have someone who translated. And if you don't think that those are spiritual gifts that God speaks through, you've never tried to preach in another language. Because when I got to a certain point in my life, uh, when we moved to Columbia, um, I didn't have any choice in the matter. I had to work in Spanish. And so the first few months was, was terrible because I, I didn't know what I was doing. I walked around constantly with a dictionary in my pocket and constantly leaning over to somebody that spoke both English and Spanish and said, how do I say this? And what's the, what's the Spanish word for this? And, and things that I tried to directly translate, what didn't work. And you make mistakes. Like in, in Spanish, they have two words for, for heat. They have caliente for spicy hot, and they have color for heat hot. And so we had a lady in the, in the group that, that got her little dictionary. She looks up hot, and it was a particularly hot day. And so she walked around all day in Cartagena saying, soy caliente, which she was saying, I'm sexy. And everybody would go, well, good for you. And what she was trying to say is, I'm hot. Well, she was using the wrong verb in the wrong Word for heat. Tango calor. <laughs> Tango calor. And so it took me a while to, to get the language well enough to be able to work in it. So the first time I tried to preach in Spanish, I realized that that's a completely different thing altogether. We use language in church that we don't use any other, other way. Every discipline has different little things. Let me give you another example to, to make my point. When I was in Turkey... I got up one morning and um, had a kitty stone. And so uh, we didn't have the car, so I walked to the hospital and I walk in and I say, I'm, I'm in terrible pain. I know how to say pain. I'm in terrible pain. And they say, what's the problem? And I realized that I don't know the word for kidney or how do they say stone? Because it, it's not stone, really, is it? And so I'm saying, I've got a tummy rock. I've got... I've got uh, a, a, a gut boulder. I'm thinking of every word that I know for stone and everything that might get a kidney. And so they finally figure out what's going on and uh, they say, well, we're going to do an x-ray. And so they put me in this room and they, they are manipulating me to get this x-ray. And then all of a sudden I've got to urinate really bad. And so I, I'm trying, I, you know, I know how to say that. I'm like, hey, where's the toilet? And they're like, well, we're in, and it's like, I got to go. And they're like, okay. And so I go, and I pass the stone. I come back into the room where, you know, there's a radiologist and a radiologist assistant, and I'm trying to figure out how to say, I walked past a rock. And they're like, well, good for you. And I'm like, no, I, 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 I passed on a rock. And they're like, I, they had no idea what I was talking about. 
And so finally they took the x-ray because, I mean, I, what am I going to do? I just, fine, you know, I'm fine, I'll get the x-ray. And when the x-ray came back and there wasn't a kidney stone because it's in the toilet in the, in, in the room, the doctor comes in and starts yelling at me because I was trying to, he said that I was trying to steal drugs. You're just coming here complaining about stuff to get drugs. And I, can't, I just had to take it. I couldn't say, no, I, I walked by the rock earlier. We, in medical stuff, we use different language. And so in church situations, we use different language. And so I actually learned to have an English speaker sitting here. And so I would think of a, a Bible verse that said what I wanted it to say. And I would hand him my Bible and kind of say under my breath, okay, well, he's the propitiation for my sins. And then I would preach and then he, he would turn in the Spanish Bible to that text. I had a, a, a Bible that had Spanish on one side and English on the other. He'd turn to it and he'd hand it to me and I would just read the verse. And so, like, for example, I was preaching in Spanish. I, was gonna, I wanted to, to preach about the propitiation of our sins. And so I'm like, I don't know the Spanish word for propitiation. And so I'm, I get him to look it up, and I look, and it's propitiationis. And I'm like, well, I, I did know that one. Um, and so I, I, I asked the group. I was teaching a group of migrant workers, and I said, who here knows what propitiation means? And everybody in the room raised their hand. And I'm like, no, you don't, you bunch of liars. And so I looked at one little kid and said, What's propitiation mean? And he said that uh, when I was a uh, kid growing up in Nicaragua, that every year in the spring when the, the snows started to melt, we would all, everybody in the village would put their money in together and we would go buy a bottle of wine and bring it down to the river and pour it in the river to propitiate the river god so the river wouldn't flood over and destroy our crops. And I'm like, that is the best definition of propitiation I've ever heard and I'm stealing it. I'm going to use it every time I teach on propitiation. So it is a gift to be able to preach and teach in another tongue, in a foreign tongue, in an unknown tongue, in a strange tongue. I shared with you a few weeks ago how the time that I got to preach in, 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 in Turkish where God just gave me the language, it was an amazing event. If that happened to me in this room in Arabic, it would not edify any of you. It would just be gibberish. I'm going to stick, not only English, I have to stick to a specific dialect of English that some refer to as redneckian. And so I believe that tongues is dealing with a specifically given gift so that a person could communicate in a language that he doesn't necessarily know very well. And Paul is saying, I wish that you had tongues, but if I spoke in another language in here, you would, nobody would understand what I'm saying. So I prefer that you would have the gift of prophecy that you would foretell what God is saying. And that also makes more sense with the idea of don't speak in a foreign tongue unless there's somebody there to translate. Because it doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's not, we're not, he's not talking about, and we don't see any examples of someone speaking a gibberish that nobody understands that's not a real language. He goes on to say, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Again, my position theologically with the sign gifts are a cautious non-cessationist. I think the gift of tongues is still given. I've shared with you, and I've actually had twice in my life when I personally experienced it. My other example was when I was about 17 years old, um, 
I, I had a, probably younger, yeah, 17. I had a little girlfriend, lived over in North Gadsden, and I uh, had gotten into a fight with her, and so I was going to buy her uh, a rose. I don't know if you guys remember, at the time, uh, all along Megan, there would be people hanging out selling roses. And uh, I go up to buy the rose, and there, the, there was a little girl. I say little girl. She's probably about my age or older. Um, and she was French. Now, I had taken two years of French in high school, which means I knew absolutely nothing about French. My French teacher, though, had learned French from being a missionary. And so she made us memorize songs, and uh, Jesus Loves Me, and, and songs like that in French, and she made us memorize Bible verses in French. And it's really funny because really the only thing I remember from French are those songs, which when I was in Haiti after the earthquake, I wore out singing Jesus Loves Me to people. I, they, I may, they may not have a clue of anything else, but if they were hurting really bad, I could sit there and hold their hand and sing Jesus Loves Me over and over to them, and it had a calming effect, even with my horrible voice. And those Bible verses, I still remember. As John 3.16 in French. And so I sat there and was able to talk to her in piecemealed together Bible verses and was able to lead her to the Lord. That God brought to my recall, God brought to my memory things that I didn't remember well enough that I could have a conversation with her and was able to lead the, the girl to the Lord. Which should have gotten me out of trouble with my girlfriend, but it didn't. <laughs> I believe that that is the gift of tongues. Um, and I believe that it's still given today when God needs it so that his word can be passed forward. 